You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2. Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD, along with me for the ride, as always, is my brother from the exact same mother, Mr. TJ2. The deuce. It just sounded like you turned on the vacuum. Maybe he did. And now it sounds like the adults from Peanuts are talking to him. (laughs) (laughs) Travis, missed you last week, but I have to say, Thea is much prettier than you. And also, it would have been a four-hour episode because of the whole butthole thing. The goober school and the butthole. Something about goobers and buttholes, yeah. Yeah, that would have taken a turn for the work, I feel like. Um, Yeah. 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 So, yeah, yeah, sometimes, you know, sometimes uh, things happen for a reason. God God moves in (laughs) mysterious ways. Yes, yes. But but often wise ones. And not having me on a show where you talk goobers and buttholes is probably on the wise list. Yep. 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 All right. And then we have our storyteller, Mr. Will the Thrill. Hey, that's me. Greetings and salutations. So luckily right now we currently don't have anything, anybody that we have to talk about. So we're just going to talk about the fact that we're doing our 31 for 31 and you know while there's a strike going on i can't exactly promote anything but we're not promoting anything when i say i am really enjoying fall of the house of usher oh yeah damn you mike flanagan for making good stuff that keeps me up late at night but i hate you but i'm not going to talk about it but Mm. but yeah we're doing a 31 for 31 and i think we're doing pretty good we've missed a couple days so we're just gonna have to kind of pack in a lot at the end tj if you don't know what 31 31 is it's watching 31 horror horror films in 31 days okay now you used to be a big fan of horror films you don't really watch movies now do you i don't really watch movies at all now so yeah i would be watching 31 movies i've already seen i'm sure if that's how it (laughs) it went have you even seen 31 movies like hey uh, well i would have to be scratching rock bottom to get to 31 it's like okay how about robot ninja I seem to remember watching that one. <laughs> Real movie that I watched. You can go look it up. Tomb- Tombstone does Sounds not delightful. count as a horror movie. <laughs> Counts as an awesome movie. Yeah, it does. So what are you guys doing with Sully for Halloween? Is she doing anything fun? Uh, I think she's going to be Raggedy Ann. <gasps> Cute. Annabelle. Annabelle. <laughs> I don't get to make any of the decisions on things like that, as you can imagine. <laughs> Are you like, guys... well, what is she going as? A booger? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, like a scary, like a scary little monster. No, I mean, like a like a, a hairy green thing from your nose. Yeah, <laughs> delightful. So, my question is, T, is she going to go trick or treating, or is that like a like more of like a three year old kind of thing? Like, is she? Yes. Well, she's going uh, trick or treating because so many people want to see her in, her in her adorable outfit, and because I want to eat her candy. Fair. She's too young for candy, but you know. People are going to give her milk duds and bit of honeys, and they got to go somewhere. (laughs) That's where you step in and be a good dad. Yep, fair. So we're probably going to stay at home and watch Hocus, uh, never mind. We're going to stay at home and watch movies and give out candy, but Will doesn't dress up. Will doesn't do Halloween. So I was like, fine, I don't care. I'm going to be something this year, and you're going to be something. So I bought him a mullet wig. I will wear that. So he's going to be wearing a mullet. And I don't know what the I've... rest of the costume is, but he's wearing a mullet. It doesn't really matter, does it? I bought it for $8 um, at Walmart. <laughs> I was going to say, well, I pro- either a hockey jersey or a wife beater would be my guess. Um, based on that haircut, 
I don't really dress up. I do occasionally. Because that one year I decided I was going to be Magnum PI and I wore like the Hawaiian shirt and <laughs> I bought like a little cur- a little curly wig and a mustache. Nice. And I, I walked into the room and everybody said that I looked like John Oates. <laughs> I mean, uh, it could be worse. They just they and then I, every time I leave the room, like to go get a a beer or something to eat and come back in, they'd go like, "Oh, here he comes." <laughs> I will say, I mean, uh, my friends are jerks. I, I think. Now is a great time to remind everybody that call and notes is a thing. Oh, it's beautiful. And you can uh, you can call this phone number, which is 719-266-2837. That's 719-266-2837. If you just want to hear a call in, a Hall and Oates song, uh, you can do that. It's just a hotline where you call in and you can choose which one you want to listen to. I think that there's like four songs. Not Sarah Smiles, apparently. But that was can't... so disheartening. It was Aaron from Yeah, Uh-Huh, and he, I told him about it on a hike, and then we all get home, and it's pretty late, and I'm on the couch, and suddenly I get this text that says, no Sarah Smiles. He was so disheartened. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe we'll call the hotline one day on this show, so. One of the one of the few songs that that John Oates sings lead on for them, is yeah. it not? Oh, interesting. It is, yeah. 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 And he has a really good voice, and you wonder why he didn't do it more. I don't know. Well, it was. I think what what it might have been was kind of the same thing that happened with TLC. Was that in the early days, Left Eye was doing the vocals, and later on, T Boz kind of filled it out for a more mature sound. So maybe it was just like a sound that they were going for. But I think both of them are excellent. Yeah. But all right. So I think that is a perfect stopping point for our chit chat, and we should just take our first sponsor break right now, and we'll be right back. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. And we are back. All right. So, Mr. Will the Thrill, uh, what are we talking about today? Well, folks, we are talking about the Escorts. Oh, wait. Um, is that a really crappy band name or is that the yep. car that mom used to have? No, that is the really crappy band name. I think named for the car if the timing works out. But this is <laughs> one of many crappy band names we're going to review in this 
next episode on, on Dwayne Allman. There are yeah. some fantastic ones in here. You know, my brother does love a good crappy band name. I, I... love a crappy band name. Oh, oh you're, yeah. you're in for a treat. Yes, we'll get I mean, the is escorts. It, I mean, and... is it like Eternal Triangle bad? There's one that is, I think, on that level. Terry Webb and the Spiders. Terry Webb and the Spiders. Classic. Algebra Ranch. Still, tell tell us your story, honey. <laughs> ah, yes. So last week we parted ways when we talked about the Allman Brothers' early life, the tragedy they suffered very early, a stint in military school, which didn't exactly work out for Mr. Dwayne Allman, and just kind of setting the tone for their musical life, the music that influenced them, the blues, R&B, a lot of things from that era. And this next picture is really going to focus on them getting their band together. When last we checked in with our friends, the Allman Brothers, they had just heard the Beatles in 1964. And that, of course, blew the doors wide off the music world. Dwayne saw it as almost like a template. He's like, this is what we need. If we can do this, we can make it as musicians. Because as we discussed, military school wasn't the path for him. Academics weren't going to happen. He was a music guy. And as we get into this week, as we see, and I think I mentioned this in our last episode, but TJ, I think you'll agree, the hardest thing I've had in writing the series was relegating Greg Allman to, like, the background. That's been so hard. Well, there's, yeah, because... He's Greg Allman. He's, yeah, well, he's Greg Allman, and of course, he he you know, lived a lot longer than his brother, but he has, like, Waylon-esque stories in his background. He does. The tendency is to, well, let's just talk a little about Big Brother or a Little Brother because, boy, the slap nuttiness level is like through the roof. But yes, I, I can. But it's, we're not doing yeah. one on him. Maybe we'll do one on him some other time. We could. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to focus probably on. Should, but. <laughs> we'll focus on the senior Allman at the moment. And that, of course, is Howard Dwayne Allman, folks. So, yeah, we're going to get into bad band names, a rivalry that's starting to come out with the boys. And you will learn why Dwayne Allman is considered one of the greatest guitar players of all time, but not one of the greatest singers. So. Here we go. Dwayne Allman was 17 when the Beatles hit the scene, which is kind of crazy, which also brings to light the conversation we had. He is going to pass away at the age of 24. So he's at 17 right now. A lot of life in those years, but not a lot of years in those life. As, and it's, that life, and as it's, they say. it's funny because you're like, yeah, this is probably going to be like eight episodes. So oh, we're going to move pretty quick, but there's a this is packed. I mean, he lived a packed life. There's no question. When he saw the Beatles, he figured out I could be a global rock star. Here's what I need to do. I can put a, together a band just like this one. You know, it's got someone on drums, someone on bass, you know, guitar, rhythm guitar. And he's like, yeah, that, that's all I need. So he kind of looked at the four piece sort of setup. In fact, when we get to their first demo, they do a very, very misguided photo shoot where they try to dress like the Beatles. Look it up. It's hilarious. You will love it. The original band name that Dwayne put forth was the Almond Joys. And for those of you checking... Stop you know, it. Stop yep. it. Yep. Stop it. Yep. No, no, yeah. no, no. The Almond Joys, uh, which, yes, does come after the candy bar. Yeah, I know. Name. Yep. But yeah. a little fun fact. Fun, fun fact. fact! The Almond Joy was founded by the Peter Paul Company the same year Dwayne was born, 1946. So... Wait, did Mary not have any kind of involvement in this? Nice. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so the problem was they had two other band members who were obviously not of the Allman surname, and they figured, well, they're going to feel left out. And so they decided to call themselves the Escorts. That was the uh, the runner-up. Yeah, right. Giggity, 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 giggity. Here, here it goes. Four hours. He's still going to be laughing are. about it. 
And the band composition was your lead guitar, your rhythm guitar, your bass, your drummer. And the only problem was gathering these components. Dwayne lived in what he called a place, quote, not conducive to musical growth, a.k.a. Daytona Beach. He had a rhythm guitar player right next to him, which was Greg. So he kind of had to poke around a bit. While he was briefly at Seabreeze High and, of course, never finished, he did meet a bass player named Van Harrison. Van actually joins up with his outfit and they bring in a drummer named Maynard Portwood. So you got your four. From very early on, it was very clear that Dwayne was top dog, and he made everybody aware of that. Harrison used to say that Dwayne was an interesting personality. The band would work on something constantly. Until it wasn't right, it was perfect. And if it wasn't perfect, we didn't play it. But at the same time, Dwayne would encourage us to experiment and try different things. So he is a leader. He's a little bit cocky, but at the same time, he is obviously trying to grow the band. And that's going to be very evident, of course, his little brother, as we'll see. His attachment to guitar was both physical and metaphorical. It was sort of his trademark. And obviously he was a very gifted guitar player because he worked harder than anybody. One of his future bandmates, a guy named Paul Hornsby, which sadly TJ is not connected to Bruce Hornsby. Bandmate Paul Hornsby would say, the guitar was an extension of Dwayne. If you ever saw him sitting down, he had a guitar on his lap and a book in his hand. He was reading or he was playing guitar, always. The only time you didn't see him without a guitar was in his walking down the street. In fact, the legend was that Dwayne would fall asleep on the couch playing his guitar at about three or four in the morning and it would just be laying right on him. He would get up, he'd actually carry it to the bathroom, swing it to one side to relieve himself, and then he'd keep playing. And he would go into the kitchen and make coffee while playing his guitar. He'd sit back down on the couch. Hey, there's no uh, P note on a guitar. Yeah, <laughs> gratefully. <laughs> uh -huh. His friend and bandmate Johnny Townsend said he woke up every day and simply said, I am going to be the best. So he was definitely a type A personality. So the band played really but, what was... But you know, really, if you think about it, Will and LD, mm -hmm. pretty much everybody who we would put on a Mount Rushmore of guitar players, this is, this is them. This is... Yeah. The existence they lead. They literally carry it to the bathroom and they, they stay up, literally stay up all night sitting in one spot for 10 straight hours. Eddie Van Halen did. They're yeah. literally moving their fingers like they're playing notes in their sleep, like Stevie Ray Vaughan. They're sleeping with the guitar like I think Hendrix did. I mean, this is this is how you get to be that guy, sort yeah. of. Yeah. And, and you, you have to just have sort of God-given talent, too, to, to be, you know, top, super top level. But, yeah, this is, he's on his way is, is kind of what I'm getting at. Yeah, absolutely. And they would try playing what was popular at the time. They did steer towards the Beatles because they were huge at that time. And actually, Dwayne did a little singing. In a great article by Joe Bell, who wrote for Hitting the Note, he described Dwayne as saying he was a guitar god, but his singing was human. As far as what Greg goes, Greg basically would shrug his shoulders and just do whatever Dwayne told him to do. So he's very much just still led around by Dwayne. And oh, yes, there were obstacles. The two biggest obstacles they faced were what they looked like and the amount of money in their pockets. They were able to book a bunch of school dances and teen clubs in Daytona, but really they were, as according to Harrison, just a bunch of backwoods redneck guys trying to play R&B in the Beatles. So they had a very time, hard time with that image. Um, in fact, they kind of hit a tough spot because, again, this period was not known for being the best and most progressive as far as racial equality. And a lot of the white audiences and musicians would actually turn their nose up at these guys because they would play, quote, black music. And the other side of the coin was when they would go to black clubs, they'd be welcomed with open arms. They'd come in, they'd play their sets, and everyone was happy. And obviously money is a concern when you're a band starting out and you just have no cash. And this was certainly no exception. 
So again, they're kind of playing around. Dwayne would continue to play with his friend, Jim Shepley, who he cited as one of his biggest influences in many clubs in town, including the prominent Martinique Club in Daytona. The band was criticized again by the white audiences who said, oh, they shouldn't be playing places like that. And there were times when they would actually try to go out afterwards and sit down and they would be denied entry because there were people of color in their party. To which Dwayne basically told him, quote, shove it up your ass and they'd go somewhere else. Well, good for Dwayne. I know. Yeah, well done, Dwayne. The other thing they needed was a demo. So to get airplay and to get on the radio, you needed to have a demo to take around to the various stations. And they figured, okay, how can we cut a demo? So they started talking to other bands where they met the Nightcrawlers. That's right. A band called the Nightcrawlers. I'm actually okay with this because I am a Nightcrawler from X-Men fan. So I nailed it. No notes. You allow it? I'll allow it. I'm pretty sure they named themselves after the worm. Let's just be honest. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if this is a band in the South in the 60s, it's they're, they're named after the worm. Oh, yeah. Most likely. Yeah. So they had got a, a demo and they were playing out. So they figured, OK, let's talk to these guys and see what's going on. And so they started going to the same clubs that Nightcrawlers went to, started talking to their band members. And it's interesting how right off the bat, the Nightcrawlers were threatened. One of their members, Sylvan Wells, actually said it was very clear that Dwayne and Greg were not happy that they weren't getting the breaks that we were, but they were way better musicians than we were. That was his take from the get go. Greg started to take it personally because he was saying, you know, no one will play us. We can't get anywhere. Dwayne was really optimistic. He would say, okay, okay, let's not, let's not get ahead of ourselves here. He said, let's figure out what they're doing and we'll just do it better. That's it. He said it was that simple. So they went around to all the clubs, to all the owners, and they started making whatever connections they could. In fact, they ran into the guy who cut the demo for the Nightcrawlers and asked him if they could record there. He says, okay. And so the escorts put together a demo of 15 songs it included songs like mostly covers of Love Potion Number 9, You've Lost That Loving Feeling, Don't Let the Sun Catch You Crying, and Pretty Woman. So a little bit from Roy there, LD. Yes. Actually, the vocal Roy. duties were well, split at this that point. That was a dynamite drop in. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. She's not the Thank best you. color. Moving she's on. not the best color analyst in music for nothing, folks. <laughs> Oh, boy. Uh, I may or may not have been on Instagram looking up Mike Flanagan. <laughs> that, that, that just reminded me so much of that scene in Major League. Anything to say, Monty? No? Dynamite drop in. That broadcast is really in. paying off for you. <laughs> I'll pay attention. Okay. And the funny thing is, the vocal duties were largely split. Dwayne sang on about half of the songs. And he really sort of urged Greg to sing on the other half. Greg was, of course, very reluctant. He's like, well, I'm just going to play my guitar. But he's like, no, 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 you should sing. You should sing. Good call, Dwayne. Account for these sessions came again and hit in the note. And they actually cited times where Greg didn't want to sing. Dwayne would basically say, no, no, go. You know, and it was very clear that he saw something in Greg. And as Greg worked, he became a better and better singer. Whereas Dwayne sort of said, okay, that can go in that direction. In the meantime, I'm going to focus on my guitar. So the two of them sort of found their natural niches, if you will. However, there was a rivalry between the escorts and the nightcrawlers as the escorts started to get more, you know, playing the clubs and whatnot. And the nightcrawlers were on the radio. They were kind of clashing at gigs. And it would all come to a head on April 17th, 1965. The Beach Boys came to town. And the Beach Boys decided they would have a contest to see who would open for their show. They actually had two acts, the Escorts and the Nightcrawlers. So the opening set for them was almost like a battle of the bands. The Escorts would come on and play, and then the Nightcrawlers would come on and play and kind of go back and forth. 
the whole time Dwayne just had him eating out of their hand. He gets up there, he's rocking out with his guitar, and the whole time the Nightcrawlers are just like, oh shit. <laughs> they were, they played what they called, quote, the worst set we've ever played to follow them up. So he's like, to this day, the members of the Nightcrawlers say, yeah, we were, we were garbage. We were total crap, and the Almonds just, just crushed it. And at that point, Dwayne, of course, feeds his bigger vision. He says, okay, you know, we can do this. We can go on the road. We can get out there. And that's where his bandmates start to pull him back. And they're like, no, Dwayne, we can't. Van Harrison says, you know, look, I, I got to go back to school. Greg's like, look, I got to finish high school. Because remember, Dwayne just stopped going to high school. Didn't really care. Uh, Van described Dwayne as, quote, the kind of guy you could have made an A in anything he wanted. He was a great writer. He was articulate. But Dwayne would simply go, this school shit just ain't my thing. So ultimately, Harrison leaves the band. He ends up going back to school. And he also said that at this time, Dwayne's, quote, dark side, end quote, starts to come back. Dwayne was really focused on the music and whatnot. But then there were times when he would just kind of disappear. He would just wander off. So here he was, this leader of the band. At the same time, he would say, you know what? I'm just going to go somewhere. And he'd just disappear and come back days later. In fact, one time they had a gig booked and they didn't know where Dwayne was. So the three of them played the show. It was Maynard, Van, and Greg. And by the time they're done, Dwayne just walks backstage with two girls they've never met before. And he goes, hey, you guys sound pretty good. So they were like, you know, what the hell? You're trying to pull this band together. But at the same time, it feels like you're you're kind of pulling away from us. So it was very early on that one thing was clear. Dwayne liked to set the rules, but Dwayne liked to say the rules don't apply to me when it was convenient to him. And the other thing Harrison was said, it was clear he's going to burn himself out. I really don't want him to burn out with me. And so... Harrison steps away from the band. With him out, now it's clear they're going to name the band The Almond Joys. So the new band decides they're going to kind of shake things up a little bit. They were looking at sort of their image and how they can be more like the Beatles, and oh, poor Maynard. Maynard was described as being a great drummer, but missing most of his teeth. They didn't kick him out, though. The brothers actually scraped together <laughs> a few hundred dollars. Yep. yep. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> but he's a great drummer, missing most of his teeth. Well, you don't need teeth to be a drummer, just like you don't need teeth to be a hockey player. You're more at an advantage if you don't. Like, think about it. Maybe he's a really good drummer, and the reason why he's lost all of his teeth is because he's banged them out. Like He's playing so hard. Playing so hard, his teeth just fell out. Like, that's the guy I want to hire. Well, it's really funny because speaking of teeth, LD, you'll like this connection. Greg Ullman was always itching to go back to school because he wanted to be a dentist. Just like that little elf in that TV show that we don't watch at Christmas time. <laughs> well, no, I was going to think you're one of your favorite drummers of all time, no? Well, you mean Roger? I mean, Sir Roger. Sir, well, I think he's different than us. Is that a sir? I think, yeah, I think he's an OPE. Okay. But there's a difference. But he did want to be a dentist, correct? Yes, he did. Got it. So link yes. up there with Greg Ullman. There you go. So they actually give him money to get his teeth fixed. So like, hey, Maynard, get this. Go get go get yourself some teeth. But according to the Ullman brother, he spent it on something else. So while they didn't say what he spent it on, Dwayne's reaction was, well, that's it. We can't make it with this no teeth thing and be like the Beatles. So they kicked <laughs> him out of the band. Aww. It's pretty sad. So this led to the Almond search for a drummer, and there's a few that would come and go, but some that will stick, and those of you who know the Almond lore may know where this is going. So they continued in the clubs, they're at the Beachcomber, they're at the Martinique, they're playing various gigs and really trying to feel out talent, when in comes a band from Jacksonville called The Bitter End, I-N-D. Oh, stop it, End. stop it, stop it. I can't, stop it. I can't make this up, I can't make this up. 
it's actually an homage LD to the Bitter End Club on Bleecker Street in New York. Okay. I'm like, wait, where's, yeah, okay. Yeah, but still a bad reference in my opinion. Now, the name of the band is inconsequential. It's the name of their drummer, and TJ, I think you'll know exactly where this is going. It's a gentleman named Claude Hudson, a.k.a. Butch Trucks. So Butch comes from Nash from Jackson. I'm guessing my brother had no idea who that was. I'd be shocked if he doesn't. He's got no Butch. He's on mute. That's why. Okay, that'd be nice. Okay, but he knows who Butch Trucks is. Trucks is, of course, a Jacksonville native. He actually started playing drums when he was in middle school, and he went to FSU in Tallahassee, where he majored in what he called, quote, staying out of Vietnam. Trucks actually grew up in a Baptist household, which is interesting because they vehemently opposed him playing music. And the only reason they let him play drums is when he, quote, promised, end quote, that he wouldn't play anywhere that served alcohol. So good luck with that. So Trucks puts his band together, and that is, of course, the bare end. They make their way up to Daytona to play some gigs, and they stumble on this club with the Allman Brothers. And he said that he was never more impressed than when Dwayne Allman came up to him to introduce himself. Dwayne said, you know, hi, I'm Dwayne. You know, this is my band. We think you play great. And they asked him if he would sit in with them one night at the Beachcomber. So Butch Trucks goes and sits in. He ends up playing with the Allman Brothers for, you know, obviously many decades to come, He's going to dip out of the picture for a little bit, but that time at the Beachcomber was the first time that the core members of the Allen Brothers, Dwayne, Greg, and Butch, all played together. So that was a landmark moment there. And again, it was kind of grabbing gigs where they could. Dwayne wanted to go on a national tour. Greg is like, I got to finish school. <laughs> I'm going to be a dentist. I can't do any of this. But Dwayne keeps sort of egging him on. So, you know, Dwayne is like, oh, come on, just just try it out. You know, come with us for this gig. Come with us for this gig. And this will obviously continue for, for decades. But, you know, let's leave that where it is for now. He does graduate high school, though. Greg does get out in 1965. And they link up with a booking agency out of Nashville called The One-Nighters, where they land a bunch of gigs outside of Daytona. It was affectionately known as the Chitlin Circuit, which I think is a term that we've brought up before on this podcast. And they were sort of touring with a couple of different bands. They were the, here you go, LD, the Five Men-its. No, yes. stop it. No. The Five Men-its. No. What did they just use a Mad Lib for shitty band name generator? Then we have the Pacers. That's not bad. And Dirty John and the Nightcaps. No. Yeah. No, that, that sounds like a band that plays in a bar with way too much like smoke in the air, really crappy peanuts that have been out for like six weeks and the floor is sticky and you don't know why. And chicken wire around the band. Oh God, yes. Yeah. So Dirty John and the Nightcaps. And really when they're on the road like this, the members just kind of float between the bands. So you've got the Escorts, you've got the Pacers, which become the Five Minutes, and then Dirty John and the Nightcaps. So these these members are going to keep coming in and out. The most important are probably Johnny Sandlin. Paul Hornsby, Pete Carr, and Eddie Hinton. So there's a bunch of other names here, but I'll focus on those for now because they have more direct connection to Dwayne. In fact, the Almonds actually finally land a residency at the famed Stork Club in Mobile, Alabama. They are set to play seven nights a week, six sets per night, 45 minutes per set, all for the princely sum of $445 per week. That was actually probably pretty good good back then because then you could also yeah. have a second job mm -hmm. well i don't know when that second job was going to be because you're playing seven nights a week six sets of 45 minutes in length each that's i a mean lot. you could still hold down a job mm -hmm. 
I, I, would, I wouldn't say like a nine to five, but like part-time job. Yeah, I totally do that. Yeah, I'm sure you could do something. Look, I'm just always looking for ways to make money. Yeah, <laughs> and, and they were too, apparently. At this point, another drummer comes in the picture named Bill Connell. He's actually becoming more of a staple here. He comes out of the broken band that was Dirty John and the Nightcaps in the five minutes. And to this day, if you actually talk to anybody from those bands, they insist that Dwayne Ullman was the one who stole their drummer away. In 1965, Connell actually wants to go back to school. He's from Tuscaloosa, Alabama. So Dwayne says, nah, come on the road with us. He's like, nah, I promised you know, my father at high school. So Dwayne says, okay, that's totally cool. I'll tell you what, you go back, you graduate high school. When you're done, I will have a plane ticket waiting to take you to New York where we're going to play. And Bill's like, all right, sure, whatever. So he goes, he, this, is his, this is Bill's story. He graduates from high school. He literally walks off the stage, goes to the airport, and sure enough, at the ticket counter, there is a ticket in his name purchased by Dwayne Allman to take him to New York. That's awesome. Yeah. I so love that. Word. So he goes up to New York. Bill ends up playing with them up there. The Allman Joys are getting some more gigs. To this day, Bill jokes that he got the job because he, quote, had good teeth, end quote. Uh, and that really takes Dude, us really hung up on the teeth thing aren't they they really are yeah super hung up it's kind of crazy so from 1965 straight through to really beginning of 1966 they're on the road again and greg says you know i want to go back to dental school Dwayne's like i don't come on he's like one more year he's like give us one more year and greg's like fine so he agrees to stick around for a little while longer and again they're kind of scraping by with the gigs they can they get pretty good one at the store club they play up to new york Some of the lows included what Dwayne called the garbage circuit of the South. These were gigs that were ones they could do for basically 150 per week. And sometimes they would get a gig where it would pay them nothing more than a bar tab, some food, and a handful of pills. (laughs) So apparently that happened. Finally, the Almonds would get a pretty good gig, and it was really the one they were looking for to sort of launch them into the public eye. Um, They got a gig at the Briar Patch, which is located in Nashville, Tennessee, apparently a pretty very well-known venue. At one of the concerts was a gentleman named John Loudermilk. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with John Loudermilk, but he is a songwriter and a producer. Some of the songs he created include Waterloo, Abilene, and Tobacco Road. So big in the country scene. Yeah, Tobacco Road, huge. Yeah, big country guy, big national country guy. He was actually given the tip that he had to check out the Almond Joys. So he goes to the club and he adopts what he calls the Colonel Tom Parker approach. This is the one where he would walk basically to the front of the stage. He would turn his back to the band and see what the, the audience was doing. So he wasn't really watching the band. He was watching the audience's reaction to the band. That's, he, that's actually really smart. It is. Yeah. Like the, the thing is, like we, we might make fun of Colonel Tom Parker now, but like the fact is he, he knew what he was looking for. And he knew mm-hmm. how to make a star. Yep. He did some terrible things, but yes, he knew that part. Yes. So he hears his band, he sees his band, and he just said, the audience was knocked out, and I was knocked out. So he instantly goes back, meets Dwayne and Greg, and is like, hey, you guys, you know, you're awesome. Why don't you come out to my estate in Brentwood, which is in Brentwood, Tennessee? And it's apparently a very, very nice place. And he says, you know, we'll get an album going, and I can get you a record deal. So the boys are like, great, let's do it. So they actually head out to record at the famed Bradley's Barn. LD, are you familiar with that venue? I am not, but I feel like we've talked about it before, even maybe on our Wayland series. Yes, it did come up there. Okay. Because Roy Acuff was a big good one there. Actually, Oscar Hammerstein played there too. Okay, that I know. That, <laughs> yeah, that you person know. I know. <laughs> and after many, many years, a solo, obviously long after the departure of his brother, Greg Allman, would record there as well. 
So at this time, the band is going there. It's their first album deal. And of course, they're acting out. You know, they're going around, they're doing drugs. You know, Loudermoke said they would have parties all night. They would bring girls back to the place. In fact, during one recording session, they actually fired off a pistol in the studio. What is it with, you know what, never mind. Yeah. What What is it with artists in the studio, just the most bananas behavior? Yeah, they were like, just completely like out of their board. Michael Jackson brought a llama and Waylon's got like cocaine and then there's guns. Like what happens at these places? I'd, I'd really love to just be a fly on the wall in some of these. It would be very interesting. They'd probably shoot you or they give might. you well, cocaine. Case, the funny thing is the bullet actually goes through the, the ceiling and they kind of laugh about it and they keep recording. But then a few weeks later, the owner of the studio comes down and it starts raining and the rain is coming right through the roof. So they shot straight through the roof of the building. Jeez. Don't know how that happened, but that's what happened. Which allegedly, Elliot, John Loudermilk shelled out for those repairs. So he paid to fix the roof at the Bradley Barn Studios. Hey, Will, hate to cut in here, but we need to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Hey, folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, Rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. And we're back. Cool. Let's get back to Dwayne Allman. He also has today the distinct honor of producing the Allman's first single. And I'm going to share a song off that with you today. This is on Dial Records, which was a subdivision of Atlantic Records. It was a two-sided single, and we're actually going to look at the first side of that. So we're going to hear a song from 1966. Here is the Almond Joys with Spoonful.
Okay, we're back. The quality of that audio was total crap. Yeah. But I liked what I heard. Like the actual sure. song was really good. Kind of reminds me of the animals a little bit. I was going to say the doors. Maybe a little bit of the doors, but yeah, for me, it was definitely like the animals, but the, the audio quality was just really bad on that one. Yeah, that might be a recording of a recording of a recording. So yeah, but it's interesting how that's sort of the introduction to the almonds. You've got, you know, Dwayne on the guitar, Greg on the vocals, and also Greg has found his new calling, which is the organ. So this is one of the first outings where Greg Allman plays the organ and he does so very, very well. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. And a lot of these things I'm going to play for you and come from this era are actually available on the Allman Brothers Dreams Collection. It's a box that they came out, I think, in, I want to say, 89 or 80, 90, maybe. But it's got just oodles of stuff. And if you're an Allman Brothers enthusiast, it's definitely something you should look at. It's got tons of stuff. So the goal of the single was really one focused goal, and that was to get the attention of the guy who owned Dial named Buddy Killen. Buddy was the type of guy who would basically bring in a band. He signed to get all the stuff going. So the goal here was to basically get his attention. So they play this for Buddy. And his reaction is exactly this. He turns off the record and looks at them and says, you cats better look for a day gig because you're the worst band I've ever heard. Ah. Yep. <laughs> so mission not accomplished. So by the end of that year, which is 1966, the Almond Joys were really just going nowhere. Uh, their record deal was obviously not going to happen. So Dwayne was even starting to get a bit discouraged. So John Loudermilk says, hey, you know what I think we should do here is you're not going to find it here. He's like, let's get you out to the West Coast. You know, let's get you out there. I think it's going to be a better fit for you. And this, of course, is the era where the California sound is coming in. So you've got artists like Bob Dylan, you know, John Baez. And, you know, Loudermuck was convinced, okay, that that's the scene for you. So how can we get him out there? Well, a solution would naturally present itself. So while all this is going on, the five minutes, yes, we're going back to them, really didn't have a drummer anymore and they didn't have a record deal. So they were trying to figure out how else they can make money. So they go over to Muscle Shoals Studios. Hey, I have called hey. that place. Yeah, and it'll be important later. Now, initially, it would prove to be a loss because their guitar player, Eddie, would actually, Eddie Hinton, would step away and start working at Muscle Shoals as a musician. But it really meant that they could go back to the Almond Joys and say, hey, look, we don't have a guitar player and you guys have a drummer. You know, let's let's join forces here. So they kind of merge into one band and they actually take on the name the Almond Joys. So they get a few gigs going out with that for the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, maybe one that you know, LD. Which is interesting because their manager, Bill McEwen, actually hears them at a show and says, hey, guys, you know, we've got connections out in L.A. Why don't you come out there and we can start managing you? So John Laudermuck was 100% correct. And the way it happened was really just by, you know, happenstance, which is really interesting. However, the trip out west would not prove to be the best for the Allman Brothers. By 1967, they were headed to L.A. as the Almond Joys, and they signed their first contract with Liberty Records, which, L.D., you remember who was tied to that, right? I don't. Eddie Cochran. Okay. Yep. Yep. That was his label. And you can imagine how first record deal signings usually go for these artists. They have no control. They have no money. And it's a, it's a tough deal. So the label says two things right off the bat. One, you got to change your name. They don't like the Almond Joys. Two, we got to get some original material for you. So the band name changes, and this is, again, against everything Dwayne and Greg wanted, to the Hourglass. Pretty lame. 
least I think so. That's, I think my silence should have said everything <laughs> that you needed to know. It's up there with Eternal Triangle, I think. It's actually worse. Yes. The Hourglass, folks. Yes. And by this time, the band was actually starting to form their famous nicknames. So everyone took on an animal name. So Johnny Salem was called Duck, <laughs> LD, Picar, <laughs> Beaver. <laughs> and Dwayne would take on the moniker dog this had like several meanings because one he looked kind of like a shaggy dog he had you know the crazy wild red hair these big old mutton chops but also he was very stubborn like a dog so they decided dog would be the best nickname for him however they had zero artistic control so they had no control over the songs they were going to do and they actually were given a producer named Dallas Smith the thing with Dallas Smith is he wasn't a bad producer. He was a pop producer who actually produced works for Bobby V and Del Shannon. He was a very much by-the-numbers guy. He knew how to put out pop hits. Problem here was this band was not a pop band. This was like a Southern blues, R&B, psychedelic kind of mix of a band. So already you have a match pretty much made in hell. And Dallas Smith's solution is, oh, you know what you're going to do? You guys are Motown. So we're going to do Motown. And the band's like, okay. What? Yeah. That's where he labeled them as Motown. Doesn't make any sense. But the back of his mind, he's got an agenda. And we're going to get to that in a second. So Dwayne is instantly, you know, against this guy. And he has no trouble showing it. He would just oppose whatever demos they proposed that they would do. They would say, hey, let's do this song. He'd just be like, no, that doesn't work. He was very convinced on what he knew his band wanted to be. And this Dallas Smith guy is just like, no, you know, you're going to do it my way. So they really don't get along. Also, Dallas Smith was usually working, used to working with artists who would just roll over and say yes. You know, he got these artists and he would basically turn them into pop stars. So it was just like, do what I say and it'll work out. And Dwayne Allman is not that type at all. So you would have direct opposition where Dwayne would, you know, basically go against everything he said. And indirect opposition where Dwayne would just subtly kind of, you know, thumb his nose at the guy. For example, he would actually get really high and come to the studio. So he'd be rocked off his ass and come in. And there was one time where they said he was so high, he couldn't even open his guitar case, which is pretty high. <laughs> That's like being too drunk to fish. Like exactly. high, high people should be able to get into their guitar cases because that's what you do. Exactly. You, you either play video games, lay in the grass or, or, or play music. strum yeah. a guitar. <laughs> which, you know, and I refuse to believe up to this point, Dwayne had not played high. So he must have been really high. Like crazy. But Dallas's agenda was this. He said he sought in Greg a soulful voice that would be a good fit for Motown. So this is where the clash comes in, is you have Dallas who sees Greg as the center and future of the band, and Dwayne who sees himself as the center and the future of the band. But let's hear some of the music. Let's let's decide what we think of all this. So we're going to share with you the song off the first Hourglass album. This one actually came out in 1967. It was entitled, it was, uh, sorry, it was a self-titled album, The Hourglass. And the song that we've selected is Cast Off All My Fears.
And we're back. I will say I hated the intro. I like the rest of the song. Like the rest of the song. Hated the intro because it was making two separate tones, which like vibrate in my chest in a certain way, and I hate it because it's like a lower tone. I don't know if anybody else experiences this, but like you know when you turn the oven fan on, that bothers me, mm-hmm. and like you know certain like ceiling fans. That is so, like, that is a top ten all time weird complaint. Yeah, it's like, just that I've ever heard in my. The oven fan, like, totally messes with my, like, heart rate and stuff. <laughs> well, it's like a thing. Like, it actually, it's bothersome. It's kind of like nails on a chalkboard for me, but they're just, while people are cooking. Like, it, it's bothersome. So, the intro was bothersome. Mm-hmm. Once it actually got into the song, yeah. it was good. I liked it. I just hated the intro. It's very indicative of its era, too. Yes. Yeah. Very much so. Well, I can tell you who wasn't happy with it was uh, Dwayne Allman. There's a number of reasons why. That was this it because per- it sounded like a fan being left on? <laughs> Interestingly enough, he did not cite that as one of his complaints. Weird. But, um, okay. Maybe there are other sources. Who knows? The recording and studio time was a complete mess, as it's described, and we'll go into some detail about that. The song was actually remixed by Dallas Smith, where he tried to push Greg's vocals forward, and he tried to push Dwayne's guitar work back. Mm, so okay. Dwayne was, wasn't happy about that. Also, the way they chose to market the band was the best. The best way I can say it is there was a writer who commented about the cover of this album, which again, Google it. It's it's quite hilarious. So the cover of the Hourglass, in which the band is wearing Beatles attire, Beatles inspired. Some of them are wearing Beatles attire. One guy is wearing a tux, cape, and a top hat. Another guy oh. is wearing a shark tooth necklace. Dwayne and Greg are dressed like hippies, and the photo is upside down. Yeah. yeah. This one writer just capped it all off by saying, what they are wearing is virtually indescribable, and it completely is. But let's not overlook one, one small fact here. If you remember, the Almonds are already signed to a contract with John Loudermilk. At Liberty, right? At, no, this is Liberty. Uh, they are signed with okay. Dial. Oh, okay. So just keep that in mind as we go here. Uh-oh. Yeah. So was this a total loss? The answer is no. They really had to fight through the studio time. Again, Dwayne and Dallas were just at it constantly. They did record an 11 album, you know, 11 song album. But the good news was they could play out in LA. So they got to places like, you know, the Whiskey A Go-Go, the Hullabaloo. In fact, they got some really strong opening gigs. They opened for The Doors, they opened for Janis Joplin, Stephen Stills, Neil Young, and they got to meet all of these people, which is really cool. They even landed... The, the, you know, knowing that you might have been in the whiskey and seen the an early incarnation, basically, of the Allman Brothers, opening for The Doors is pretty badass. <laughs> that's that's Holy awesome. Holy crap, yeah. what a concert. What I wouldn't have given to be there. Oh my god. Other bands you had mentioned, The Animals, LD, they opened for The Animals, too. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Also, Big Brother and the Holding Company, Jefferson Airplane. So they were actually having a great time playing out. That's, of course, when the suits stepped in and said they couldn't do it anymore. They amended the contract for Liberty that said the band couldn't play out locally anymore. How do you amend an existing contract? That's what they did. (laughs) No, you can't do that. They did. Like they needed, I mean, I get, you know, they're, they're, they're newbies. They don't Mm -hmm. really know what's going on. You know, they're, you know, far away from home and they just want to play their music and, you know, legalese is not their expertise. You literally can 
not nope. <laughs> no god i wish they'd known to you know hired a lawyer because that's yeah. that would have been the most easily winnable case ever one would imagine but they said that the concern was they said the band would get too overexposed now the other problem is with these contracts your band doesn't make any money so they're broke and they can't play out so they basically cut off their income right at the knees because they made gig they made money by doing gigs but that was not going to happen so it led to some stress in the band in fact their bass player maven mckinney who's the one dressed as one of the members of the beatles on the album cover for some inexplicable reason he says i can't do it anymore you know i, I can't be out here you can't play gigs i'm broke i gotta go home so they're gonna again try to find a replacement they find a guy named bob keller who actually links them up with some gigs in northern california so they do get up to san francisco to play the avalon and of course the famous fillmore west now for those of you who know the history of the fillmore it was the same location where in 1970 there was a triple bill that featured david singer jethro tull and manfred mann's earth band All right, Tom, take it away. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Tom McGuinness, and that was your federally mandated Manfred Man reference of the podcast. I hope you are satisfied. We are satisfied, Tom. Every we are satisfied. Time. But uh, all kidding aside, it was the place that was actually chartered by the late, great Bill Graham, who was attached to the Allman Brothers, and we'll get into their stints at the Fillmore later in the series. But Bill Graham, hell of a guy, and he's the one who introduced Statesboro Blues, if you remember from that last recording. He simply got up on stage to say, okay, the Allman Brothers band, and they started playing. So that was that. He was also known for promoting a few artists you may have heard of. You know, some we've mentioned, Big Brother and Holding Company, Jefferson Airplane, The Grateful Dead. So... Few, few notable acts, I'd say. But it was on the 20th of November, 1968, that Greg Ullman bought his brother a very unique birthday present. Was it a trumpet? Was it another trumpet? It was not a trumpet. It was a case of beer, the newest album by Taj Mahal, and a bottle of Coridacine cough syrup, or cough pills, because Dwayne had a cold at the time. So what did Dwayne do? He took the bottle, emptied it of the pills, put it on his finger. That is allegedly when Dwayne Allman started playing slide guitar. Well, that that means something. Yes, considering he's one of the best slide guitar players <laughs> of all time. Say that was a pretty um, good gift. Yeah, exactly. He uses the empty bottle as a slide, which his bandmates were not too happy because Paul Hornsby was quoted saying, he drove us nuts. There is nothing in the world worse than hearing somebody learn how to play slide guitar, unless it's learning hearing someone learn to play the fiddle. He said that was the only thing that was worse. But Dwayne kept doing it. Again, this is a guy who plays night and day, 24-7. He's got that thing on his finger. He's sliding. And he was largely in inspired by Taj Mahal. The Hourglass would actually land a few gigs in later in the year. They would open for Buffalo Springfield, which is pretty cool. When the new year rolled around in 1968... Liberty Records was quick to point out that they were signed for yet another album, so they forced the Hourglass back in the studio, back in front of Dallas Smith, and they start working on the second album, which, according to the numbers here, they said that they turned the whole album out in a month. In one month. The album was called The Power of Love. That was actually the opening track and title track, and fun fact here. Fun fact. Fun fact here. The Power of Love for the Hourglass was the first song that was put down on recording, penned by Greg Ullman. Nice. Yep. He had other, obviously written some other things, you know, informally in for the band, but in an actual recording studio, and he got credit on it, he is the writer of that song, which is pretty cool. And once again, Dwayne and Dallas absolutely hated each other. In fact, there was one point where Dwayne just left. He just got 
so angry, he walked out of the studio. And when they tried to get a hold of him, he was on a plane back to Daytona. So they needed somebody to fill in on guitar. So they brought in this guy, Pete Carr, again, who's from that melange of all the bands we mentioned before. He came in, he started playing, and then Dwayne inexplicably came back to finish up some guitar work on like the last song of the album. And then when he heard the album, he was so furious. He was just saying, man, this sucks. And it wasn't that his his bandmates were bad. It was just that he thought the album was just terrible and he hated Dallas Smith and everything about him. Now, some people look at this time as being a bit controversial because Greg was coming into his own. He was now writing songs. He's becoming a pretty good singer. He had two albums under his belt, and it was clear that Dallas wanted him to be the focus. Dwayne was constantly being pushed to the back. You know, his guitar solos were actually being shortened in remixes. Dallas would add horns and backing vocals and a lot of things that Dwayne didn't even know were going on. So he was just not happy with the whole thing. And the funny thing is, Greg didn't want to be the focus. Greg was actually happy just being behind his organ off to the side somewhere. He did not want the spotlight. So it's interesting how at this time that shift was was kind of happening. Um, while Dwayne couldn't play any gigs out, they couldn't stop him from just going to gigs. So he would go and see whoever he could in L.A. And one of those bands was, of course, Taj Mahal, who he had heard the album, he had absolutely adored. And in fact, he heard their guitar player Ed Davis play Statesboro Blues live which many believe is the same arrangement that the Allman Brothers used. It's never been pinned as a theft, but if you listen to the two, it's really darn close. Uh, the Hourglass did a promotional tour after releasing Power of Love in the spring of 68, but it was really clear that this just wasn't going anywhere. Liberty Records had no idea how to manage them. The band had no money, so they're like, what are we going to do? So they decided, here's what we're going to do. We have a stint out, you know, east. We're going to play a show in St. Louis. We got some time off. We're actually going to detour away from St. Louis. We've got some friends down at Muscle Shoals Studios. Hey, I've called that place. Yep. And it'll be obviously very important in the timeline of Dwayne Allman. But as we wrap up the episode, I do want to point out something that, yes, they are still under contract with Dial. Dwayne kind of ignored the whole situation. He just said, you know, he didn't even acknowledge it. He was like, eh, whatever. He didn't care. So Greg felt bad about it. He actually writes a letter to John Loudermilk and says, look, here's the situation. I'm sorry. Is there any way we can release the contract? What he got back shocked him. Loudermilk sent back the original letter on the back he had written and signed with the following words. You are released from all the contracts we have without any payment or anything owed to me. I just want to see you guys make it. Aww. Yep. Well, that's a rarity. It is. And Loudermilk actually later said that he destroyed the contract. He actually took it out of his office, completely tore it up, and he How? said... It, it, oh, no, I was just going to say, in the hundreds of episodes we've done, I, I think this might be the first time we ever had ever heard... And there was this really nice, caring person at a record company who was only concerned with the well-being of his parents. Yeah, and he was. And obviously it could have gone the other way. I mean, imagine if they just tightened the screws to these guys, they could have really screwed them. And we may not have had the Olin brothers because they're not the Olin brothers right now. Loudermilk's response in a later interview was, I've been held back by contracts in my career the whole time and I didn't want it to happen to them. Now, when it came to playing live, Dwayne obviously wanted to do that more than anything. The producer for the Hourglass, not Dallas Smith, but the one who signed them actually said, it was obvious that Dwayne Allman had been transported from a different age. He was going to be the leading commentator on guitar for our era. It was obvious that he was a guitar player of unusual ability. And Dwayne kept hacking away at that slide. He played night and day. And then he said in a great, very like sort of off the cuff comment, he says, 
For a while, everyone was looking at me thinking, oh no, here he goes, he's going to do it again. But then I got a little bit better at it. And the understatement of that cannot be overlooked as we do go into the final song of our episode, ladies and gentlemen. But to hear Dwayne Allman say, I got a little better at slide guitar is just humorous in my opinion. He's the slide guy, yeah, unequivocally. And as the band embarks for Muscle Shoals, my dear listeners, we will take a break. And we will come back with more on Dwayne Allman in the next episode. All right. Well, LD, what do, what do you think? Uh, it, It's really interesting to sort of see the nexus early on and then to come to this one and see that they've made the next big step. I really, there are some terrible band names in there, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, yeah that was that was bad. Yeah, the hourglass bad. And then, you know, other than that, I'm glad that he is now on the path that he's supposed to be on and what he's going to be remembered for. So that was a nice little step. So I'm excited to see what else, you know, see what else is in store. Yes, it will be quite a journey. Great. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to the next episode, which will be put out next Monday. But right now, here is our social stuff. Uh, if you'd like to drop us a coin, you can do so at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. Why bother checking out a Twitter? It's just a desert wasteland. <laughs> our Instagram, however, is rock and roll heaven LT. I think we're also on threads, but I don't even know how to we thread are? yet. Uh, yeah, we are, but I don't oh, good. I, I think it's the same thing as Instagram, but I don't know yet. I'm still trying to figure it out. But we have the Instagram. We also have Facebook, which is Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. Check that out. We're having a blast over there. Admin Thea is killing it as always. We like to thank her also for stepping in last week for my brother's absence. She's amazing. And uh, of course, she's got her new show coming up soon. So we're excited for that. But our website is Rock and Roll Heaven. Oh, you thought I was actually going to give it to you. Uh... Oh, no. It's a trick or a treat. And you got neither. Um, our TikTok, Rock and Roll Heaven Pod, and you can email us at rockandrollheavenlt at gmail.com. And please make sure to check out all the other awesome Pantheon podcasts at pantheonpodcast.com, including the new show that I'm producing, Getting Real with John and Beth, which you can find in any podcatcher. And uh, other than that, I'm excited for next week. TJ, would you like to say anything to the audience? Everybody. All right. I guess I'll just say thank you guys so much for checking this episode out. Please make sure to step in next week to check out next week's episode, which will be part three, three, three. Part three. Part three. Part three. Um, three. And this will be coming out before Halloween. So I'm just going to wait on saying happy Halloween to you guys so far. I'm going to say that next time. Uh, But other than that, we love you guys and we will catch you next week. I'm going to hand the reins over to Mr. Will the Thrill to close out the episode. Thanks, LD. We are actually going to close this one out with an Allman Brothers cover of a John Lee Hooker tune. This one actually was released by Hooker in the 50s, and it's got, in my opinion, one of the most iconic blues licks of all time. But I will offer, before we get there, a fun fact. This is the only Allman Brothers song where Dwayne is a lead vocalist. Fun fact! That's right. So let's take a listen, folks, and hear why Dwayne Allman is the greatest guitar player of all time. This one comes from the Ludlow Garage in Cincinnati, Ohio from 1970. We're going to close this one out with Dimples. Good night, everyone. Good night. We don't do this song very much, but I feel like singing, so I guess that's what we're going to do.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 